Now, you may have noted that last week's sermon was a little shorter than usual. Well, I'm not trying to establish a new pattern. Uh, in fact, today's sermon may very well be as long as the sermons Mark preached in my absence. <clears throat> because we're going to cover an entire chapter of the book of Romans. And Romans is an amazing book, as we've become well aware. The first eight chapters of Romans, Paul outlines for us what Christians believe. Chapters 12 through 16 outline how we're to behave. Chapters 9 through 11 kind of stand alone. Because Paul is dealing with an issue that comes to mind when he's talking about Christians and what they believe and how they behave. And the question relates to the Jews. What about the Jews? And the main question is, has God now rejected the Jews? You know, Paul made it clear in the first eight chapters that without Christ, no one is saved. But the question then arises again, what about the Jews. You know, they had a special relationship with God long before Jesus came on the scene. And just because God came out with a new program to make people Christians, surely that wouldn't affect the Jews of long standing, would it? Couldn't they just stay Jews and keep things as they'd always been? You know, if God wanted to raise up another people, that would be his prerogative, but then he would simply have two peoples, Jews and Christians. Now, that seems to make sense. So perhaps the question shouldn't be, has God rejected the Jews? But does God have more than one people? And indeed, that question has been asked. It was asked 2,000 years ago, and it's still being asked today. In fact, that very question is the heart of the issue dividing the historical Christian view of eschatological events, the, the final events of history and the second coming, from the popular premillennial dispensational views as taught in the Left Behind novels. Now, don't worry. It's not our purpose here to examine the differences that exist between premillennial and amillennial positions. But the heart of the difference has to do with the role of Israel in history and in current events. The premillennial dispensationalists teach that God has two separate people, Israel and the church and two separate plans for them. Now, in my estimation, that position overlooks the fact that Jesus broke down the dividing wall between Jews and Greeks and made them into one body through the cross. That there is now no distinction between Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, and that all are one in Christ Jesus and that Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm convinced the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that God has only one plan of salvation 
And that it is only through Christ, his son, that anyone finds eternal life. So without being anti-Semitic, I do have to say that unbelieving Jews are lost without Christ. But God has not rejected them. They have rejected him. And it's not as though the Messiah was a new idea. All of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 on looked forward to his coming. And Paul has has dealt with this at some length already in this letter. So he draws these truths together in one final explanation of the relationship between the Jews and the Christians in chapter 11 and makes clear the fact that God has not withdrawn his offer of eternal life from anyone. Anyone can choose to become a child of God. He is willing to save anyone who will come to him in faith and accept his offer of grace through Jesus Christ, his son. Now, there are portions of this chapter that are used by dispensationalists to support their views. And when taken in isolation from the rest of the chapter, some verses can seem to indicate that God is going to deal differently with Israel than with others. Now, you hear this all the time. You hear it when you go to the Holy Land, when you're on tours. Politicians say that. So it's, it's a very common belief. But, you know, I'm convinced that if this chapter, the 11th chapter of Romans, is studied as a whole and is kept in context, it makes it very clear that God does not have two plans. He has only one people. And that anyone can become a part of that people through faith, regardless of ancestry, ethnic background, culture, or anything else. God has rejected no one, but offers to all on the same basis the opportunity of eternal life. And Paul begins his argument by pointing out the fact that God always keeps a people. Again, Romans chapter 11. I say then... God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars and I alone am left and they are seeking my life. What is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the need to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? That which Israel is seeking for It is not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it, 
and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their back forever. This is proof that the book of Romans is a hard book to study. But it's very, very important. And it's worth the effort. And the proof that God hadn't rejected the Jews should have been evident because Paul was a Jew. You know, God had not turned his back on his people. He was offering them more than they had ever had. He was offering them the very fulfillment of the law, the climax toward which they had been looking for thousands of years, the fulfillment of all the promises he had made to them. And many Jews accepted that offer. The apostles, as we've noted before, were all Jewish. The 70 in the upper room were Jewish. The 3,000 converts on Pentecost were Jewish. In fact, the overwhelming majority of Christians until Paul started evangelizing the Gentiles were Jewish. So God had definitely not rejected his people. Many of them had been faithful to their heritage and to God by following through with all God had intended for his people. Sadly, however, most did not. In fact, Paul calls them a remnant, that they were a faithful remnant. And God has always had a faithful remnant. He always keeps a people. Sometimes the remnant is very small. There were only eight people who believed God in Noah's day. Sometimes there are more than anyone realizes. Elijah thought he was alone. But there were 7,000 men who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. The same was true in Paul's day. Jewish historians tell us over 2 million Jews became Christians in the first century. So there was a sizable remnant. God had certainly not shut the door on the Jews. Any of them could be numbered with the faithful remnant if they chose to do so. And if they would acknowledge that they became the people of God, not by works and because then they deserved it, but by God's gracious choice. But that was hard for most Jews to believe. They thought they could earn their standing with God through the law, and some really tried to do so. They tried to live holy, righteous lives, but they couldn't do it. Even those who tried the hardest, knew that they weren't obeying God perfectly. But they were obstinate, Paul said last week. They wanted to earn their salvation. You know, it feels so much better to know you've earned something, to think you owe somebody something because they gave you something you didn't earn. There's a tendency not to accept gifts from God because then we feel obligated. We'd much rather think God is obligated to us because he's been so good. But that just doesn't work that way. It's impossible. They weren't obeying God perfectly. They couldn't earn their salvation. And then when God made it clear that anyone could become his people through grace, the Gentiles jumped on it. 
the Jews resisted it. It was as if, as if they were in a stupor, that they couldn't see or hear the truth, and, and God let it happen. In fact, he hardened them in their unbelief to make the offer of salvation more desirable to Gentiles and eventually to Jews alike. We're going to see how this all plays out here in a minute. You know, God had not given up on the Jews. He was just letting them live with a hard heart for a time so it would become obvious who his people were. And he would then use both his people and those who weren't at the moment his people to reach others. Let's read on, 11 through 15. I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow... I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? That was true. The vast majority of Jews stumbled over Jesus. But they didn't have to stay down. They could get back up and stand on that stone they had stumbled over, just like anyone else. And that was God's plan and his desire for them. But even their stumbling hadn't been all bad. You know, God is in the business of turning failure into blessings, and good had come out of the Jews stumbling over Jesus because the gospel was offered to the Gentiles only after the Jews, as a nation, had rejected it. Now, it's not that God hadn't intended to save the Gentiles, for as Isaiah had prophesied, I was found by those who sought me not. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. God knew the Jews would reject his offer, but he felt obligated to give them first opportunity to respond to it because it had been promised to them for years. God also knew it would take the Gentiles to get Jews to accept his offer. Again, as we saw back in chapter 10, Moses himself said, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. It was God's plan to stir the Jews to jealousy by blessing others. And I think we all know how powerful a motivator jealousy can be. You know, kids always want what someone else is playing with. Well, God uses the same tactic to get us to respond to him. He chose a nation early in history to bless in the hopes of making others jealous, of making them want him too. And then when he offered himself to them, they did want him. They were ready to accept him. 
And he knew that in order to get the Jews to want a relationship with him that exceeded what they had, he would have to pour out a blessing on others that surpassed what they had. He would have to make them want what others had. It's always been God's desire that all be saved. But he knew what it would take to get the job done. So he worked one group against the other, not to put one out, but to stir the other to acceptance. He was and still is willing to use jealousy to get people into his kingdom. And I hope we don't overlook just how powerful a force for evangelism jealousy can be. You know, we may not be able to convince people by the logic of our arguments that they need the Lord. But if we can demonstrate to them the joy and love and peace and fulfillment he's brought into our life, perhaps we can make them want it. So let me ask, how many people want what you have? What they see in you? How many are jealous of your relationship with the Lord? I hope there are more than you think. Anyway, that is why God has dealt with the Jews and the Gentiles as he has. To get them both into his family. And he does put both of them in the same family, or as Paul puts it, God grafts them into the same tree. Hang in here. This is kind of heavy, but I think you'll get the picture. Verses 16 through 24. And if the first piece of dough be holy, the lump is also. And if the root be holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Well, the first thing I think that should be obvious here is that God has only one holy tree, not two or three. Jews 
and Gentiles and anyone else, if there can be anything else, are all made a part of one tree. God does not have a Jewish tree and a Christian tree. He has only one people. And that tree was not planted on Pentecost. God has had a people longer than that, and we are all part of the same tree. Our roots don't go back only to an upper room in 33 AD. Our roots go deep into Jewish history. And to change the analogy, as Paul does in Ephesians 2, we are God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus being the cornerstone. We're built on a foundation that was laid in the Old Testament. So being part of God's family is not something new. And we're not a new family. We're a family that was built on the foundation that was laid all through the Old Testament. Our faith has Jewish heritage, has Jewish roots. Now, Paul has already made it clear that not everyone who is a physical descendant of Abraham is included in this tree. As he puts it here, some branches were broken off because of unbelief. And many Jews had been cut off because they failed to believe what God said to them through his son. On the other hand, many others had been grafted in, and those grafted in came on the basis of faith. Now, Paul goes to great lengths to make sure one branch doesn't think it's better than the other. The new Gentile branches shouldn't think that just because God had removed some Jewish branches that he didn't love them anymore. In fact, he says God is anxious to restore the unbelieving branches to the tree. God wants to put the unbelieving Jews back on his tree. It's natural that they be there. They were once a part of it. And if they'll believe, they can be put back on the tree. But if they won't believe, they will remain cut off from the tree and cut off from the source of eternal life. No, God did not form a new tree out of the broken off branches. The Jews' only hope is to be grafted back into the tree that is now made up of Gentile and Jewish believers alike. And all that are there are there on the basis of faith in what God has done, acknowledging that it's only because he is a merciful God that they are there. Let's read on. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. He doesn't want us be informed here. Lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 
For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Now, admittedly, this reference to the fullness of Gentiles and all Israel has been a source of much confusion. The dispensationalist says it means that God has allowed a limited length of time for a certain number of Gentiles to come into the kingdom, contrary to his original plan. And that once that is done, once the church age is over, all the Jews will be saved according to God's original plan. But again, that overlooks the fact that God has always wanted Gentiles to be a part of his people. The purpose for the Jewish nation was to light the way for others. Isaiah said they were to be a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeons and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. So when Paul says a partial hardening has happened to Israel to let Gentiles in, he is just stating how God worked out the plan to get Gentiles included in his people to make them part of his tree. And then he says, thus all Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean every Jew will be saved after some Gentiles get in, but that only then will Israel be complete. You know, we've already been told that spiritual Israel includes all believers. And I'm convinced this is what's being said here. Israel is not complete until believers of all nations are included in it and they are all saved the same way. The prophecy Paul quotes here refers to the coming of Jesus. It is Jesus who takes away sin. And he had already come to do just that when Paul wrote this letter. That prophecy had been fulfilled. The deliverer had already come from Zion. It wasn't something to look forward to. Now, it's true. Some of the Jews had rejected him and were fighting the spread of the good news, but God still loved them and wanted to save them. He had made an offer to save them, and the offer was still good, even though they had turned it down. God does not take back his promises. He had promised to save his people and was still willing to do so. But all of God's promises are conditional. God entered into a covenant relationship with the Jews. He had not granted them un unconditional bliss and blessings. In fact, their entire history was one of breaking the covenants, being punished, and then being restored to faith. God's faithfulness is that that offer is always good. If anyone will repent of their disobedience and obstinacy and seek his forgiveness and restoration, he will forgive them. And all have disobeyed. 
all are in need of mercy. The Jews were disobedient and the Gentiles had disobedient. All were in the same boat. All were in need of mercy and it's available to all. God has cut no one off. No group has been excluded from his promise to save if they'll just let him. God longs to be merciful to all and invites all to become part of his people. And on that thought, Paul draws this discussion to a close with a benediction. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Again, a difficult chapter to comprehend, but a very important truth. God has rejected no one. And for us to be so bold as to say Jews without Jesus are lost, it's true. But if they will accept Jesus, they can be grafted back in to the tree. There's hope for everyone. Everyone who will accept the gift of grace and acknowledge that God has made it possible for everyone to become part of his people. That's an amazing thought. And Paul, again, after outlining that, he just bursts into that doxology. And, and that leads us to a doxology as well. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gates that all may go in. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. The offer has been made, and no one is excluded unless they choose to be. I pray you have chosen to be included in the people of God. Let's celebrate that.